Hello, this is Katherine Nichols. I'm recording today without Sandra Newman since she's on semi-hiatus while she's working on her new book. Still, this is Lit Century, and we're still going to talk about one book for each year of the 20th century. Today we have a guest, V.V. Ganeshanathan, who also goes by Sugi. Um, she's the co-host of Literary Hub's fiction nonfiction podcast, as well as author of the novel Love Marriage. She teaches writing at the University of Minnesota, and she chose this book that we're going to be talking about today. It's Excellent Women by Barbara Pym, and it came out in 1952. I'm still working on my summarizing skills, um, so if you have reader feedback on if this is if this is the right kind of summary, you can send that to me. Um, this one, it's about Mildred. Um, she's an unmarried woman over 30 who considers herself kind of an old maid. She lives in London in an apartment um, that shares a bathroom with another unit. And at the start of the book, a couple moves into that other apartment. And the husband of this couple is a kind of dashing guy called Rockingham Napier. And his wife's name is Helena, and she's an anthropologist. And Mildred ends up sort of embroiled in their lives and the lives of several of her friends and their friends, and she's in two different love triangles, um, and the one that we talk about most in this episode includes Mildred, Helena, and Helena's anthropologist friend, Everard Bone. Um, ultimately, Mildred does not marry in this book, and we're going to discuss in detail why that's such a satisfying ending for this book um, in a way that seems kind of rare for love triangle books. Um, I hope that's all the right background you need to enjoy this. Here we go. Welcome, Sugi. Um, so this is the first book that I have read for Lit Century that I actually stayed up till it was uncomfortably past my bedtime. I was exhausted, could barely read, but had to keep reading. Um, I do think of it as a novel of suspense. <laughs> it's a novel of suspense, and it was so pleasurable. I just felt so swept away by enjoyment, like teenage enjoyment i'm so happy um um so this one was your choice do you want to tell me a little about like why you chose it and what you think about it sure um this book i had not read and um as you probably are aware i have gone through a few editors on the novel that i am currently working on and my second editor uh noah aker who's now at Flatiron, he and i were having lunch and he was telling me about this book because I was teaching a class on gender and humor in literature and performance at the University of Michigan, where I was then teaching. And Noah asked me if I had read this and I hadn't. So I went and got it and was like, this is amazing. This is so funny. Um, funny. And I was, so I taught it to a bunch of undergrads and it was a semester where I was also teaching Mindy Kaling and Tina Fey and, um, you know, other many other folks who were sort of much more part of pop culture and to find this so intensely pleasurable because of the because of Mildred's voice yes um which I think is so like sort of the great interior monologue of Mildred which is um you know the thing that I love about this book how smart she is and how little she cares about whether other people think that she's smart um, I have a lot just, more to say about that. So yes, yeah. I agree um, in a big way. So tell me what you loved about it. This is probably like taking it off in a different direction for a minute, but it felt really cinematic to me. 
the fact that it's taking place in this post-World War II version of England where um, this woman, Mildred, is getting to, um, she's, she's single, she lives alone. She has these pleasures of singleness um, and independence. She has her own job, she has her own income. And the pleasures of her independence are so small in the one, on the one hand, and they're so um, visualizable, like the pleasure of getting to choose which church she goes to of the neighborhood church options. And um, the fact that the church that she's actually going to is partly crumbled, like only one part of it is accessible because other parts of it have been bombed. It, it's like a combination of an incredibly visceral landscape that she's living in that's a version of London that is not the London of 10 years earlier or 10 years later. It's not, she's not marching toward anything. It's not, it's not a version of London where she's thinking about the past. She's not thinking about the future. She's just thinking about the pleasure of getting to choose which church she goes to. Um, oh, that's interesting. And I, I felt like I could see it. I felt like I could see the um, the church and the um, the stairway where her new neighbor is talking. They share a bathroom, and the new neighbor says, "Like, oh, I realized I've been using your toilet paper." But she kind of yells it down the stairs, and Mildred is like, "Oh, we're yelling about toilet paper, are we? Okay." <laughs> and she, it's like this sort of cheerful lack of judgment that seems. It seems in great contrast to pretty much every book written in England ever. Yeah. And yet um, I think Pym is often compared to Austen as this is, I mean, it's a novel of manners, certainly. Um, I think you're also right that it's a novel of, I like calling it intense, small pleasures. I was going to say pettiness. Yes but like a very joyous kind of pettiness. Um, it's funny, the first time I read this, you know, I was raised Hindu and um, while certainly I'm steeped in various Judeo-Christian things, like sometimes my interest in churches is, certainly as a younger person, I don't think I parsed all of the religious, um, there's like a lot of religious pettiness in here, which is really funny. I like um, religious stuff, yeah. And I think I totally, I th- not that I totally missed it the first time, but it wasn't what I was focusing on. I think what I felt the first time I read it was this, sense of almost anachronism because it was very easy for me to forget actually um, with the exception of things like the um, references to like the church landscapes and stuff. I could almost forget which era they were living in and think that it was one that was much earlier. And then the things that would disrupt that feeling were um, other than the churches, there's a Hoover bag, a Hoover vacuum cleaner bag oh, that's yeah. emptied at one point. And I remember that totally ruptured my sense of time. I was like, right, I'm I'm in a different when than I think I am. And then there's also an electric fire. Um, yeah. With its glowing bars. And um those those things sort of brought me back to the the present of the novel. It is as it, it is actually tended. But the ways that people behave with each other are in some cases, um, I mean, certainly very reminiscent of Austin. Um yeah, it's so that tightness, the, like a, a tightness of the landscape and also of the prose that feels really Austin. It's like a sort of a small landscape that she's working within and a small cast of characters and um, everything in the book feels very purposeful and planned. It doesn't feel like one of these big kind of hairy, rangy books. No, it's certainly a slim volume. And I think also, although 
one could look at the structure of the book and look at the various things that happen in it and think of it almost as a novel of incident or anecdote or episode. Um, it does actually have like this kind of gorgeous invisible structure that leads you towards this end. And so um, I also hadn't, I don't think I, I don't think I noticed nearly as much about the book the first time as I read it as I did this time. Right. Like there's, so Mildred living in her, these sort of like these great settings that I feel like would be a little bit hard to write now where, so Mildred lives in a house and she has her own flat, but she shares a bathroom as you've alluded to with other tenants and she has no control over who those tenants are. And so at the beginning of the novel, this couple moves in, the Napiers, Helena and Rockingham, <laughs> which is such a great name. Oh yeah. The names are amazing. Amazing. <laughs> They're so great. And so they're, and they're such, they're sort of like a bickering mismatched couple. And like Rocky is, um, you know, during the war, he was over in Italy, which is like often alluded to as this other more beautiful place where you might have become a different self. And while he was over there, he flirted with all of these Ren officers, making them happy and had an Italian girlfriend. And, you know, and Helena is like, amazingly enough, an anthropologist. I have so much to say about Italy and the anthropologist. Um, so yes, I, but I, yeah, I think that idea that uh, Mildred is both startled by her having a job like anthropologist, like a career job and also kind of like bemusedly approving of it. Yeah. Yeah. She sort of, um, there's this way in which both Helena and um, another character, Allegra Gray, they are, not the excellent women of the title. And sometimes Mildred kind of, she doesn't exactly envy them, but she observes that despite their lack of tidying up and not knowing how to um, do the index or read the proofs, uh, which I guess is sort of code for helping men. Yeah. um, And also is a literal device of the novel that, um, you know, they, they seem to get along fine despite not having these competencies in which she herself is so good. Um, and then I guess, so there are these kind of like two triangles and Mildred is in both of them, which is, I think last time sort of focusing, I think last time I read, I focused on totally different things. So I didn't really think about the triangles, but that is sort of this interesting character structure where Mildred and is sort of also entangled with, um, her friends, uh, the Mallory's Julian and his sister Winifred and, and Julian is a clergyman and, and Winifred is his like, um, hapless. I don't know why. Do you think she's hapless? Um, I think that she is hapless because I think that um, the amount she depends on her brother not getting married for her having a place to live and then when he does get engaged and she refuses to plan for some other place to live until it's so close to the wedding that she's like, it's a crisis and she has to have help from Mildred in order to just have a place to stay at all. And Mildred feels imposed upon. I mean, that's, that's kind of hapless behavior compared to, um, compared to some of the other women, let's just say. I guess that's true. And and, and yeah, she does turn up at Mildred's door. People are always turning up at Mildred's door asking for help. Um, Yeah. And just says, but Mildred, I thought I could live with you. (laughs) Um. Yeah, I was thinking in terms of those two triangles, which you're calling them triangles, but they're love triangles or attraction triangles of some kind, like they're like interest triangles. Um, And I was thinking that often when a book has 
a love triangle and then the sort of pivotal character decides neither of these people, usually it feels like kind of a cop-out. And I was trying to figure out what's the mechanism that makes the fact that, spoiler alert, she doesn't marry anyone. It feels like a stand-up and cheer victory at the end. And I was thinking that there's something, you know, you could you could say, you can see the tradition she's working in. You can see the relationship to Austen and other books um, that are, in fact, romantic comedies that end in a wedding. And, and yet there's some things that she's doing that are really different that make staying unmarried seem like this strong and even exciting choice for your life. So, and this brings me to the fact that I've actually left out um, one of the characters of the book. So there are these two triangles, there's Mildred um, and then her housemates, the Napiers, Rocky and Helena. And then there's this other house, um, the Vicarage with Julian Mallory, his sister Winifred and their tenant, Allegra Gray, who is the widow of a clergyman. And then there's Helena's anthropologist colleague who has the entrancing name of Everard Bone. <laughs> um, and Catherine, here I have to like double spoiler alert, tell you that this time in reading the novel, I kind of went and I was looking up other Pym novels and was looking up um, Mildred, Mildred Lathbone, um, sorry, Lathbury. Um, and one of the things I've discovered is that while the first time I read this book, I was like, oh, Mildred doesn't get married. Mildred, I feel like I shouldn't even say this, but I have to say this. Mildred marries Everard. She marries Everard. Um the way that that she thinks about marrying him at the end of this book is thinking about him helplessly unable to cook his own meat uh, for dinner. <laughs> what a metaphor. I know. And then she's like, you know, it's quite a lot of work to cook a man's meat all the time. And then if she doesn't no want shit. to, and she feels resentful <laughs> of the assumption that that's what she would do if he wants it, that if he asks that she would then do it. And then she sort of has this like sleepless night of passion really, where she's thinking about (laughs) with his meat uncooked and not knowing what to do and needing her and wishing for her and her not being there. And he hasn't at this point asked her to dinner and then he does. And then he successfully like cooks his cooks dinner for them. Right. He has someone else do it. Okay. He has someone. Quote unquote, the woman took care of it. So I think he has um, hired perhaps a housekeeper or someone who does it. And then he asks Mildred to take it out. Uh, Take, would you take out the casserole at half half past seven? But so I was, I also felt this sense of triumph the first time I read the book that she didn't marry him. And then I discovered that in various other books, they, Pim doesn't return to these characters as central but apparently they sort of appear in other people's conversations, Mr. and Mrs. Bone. With the cooked meat. <laughs> apparently they probably take casseroles to other people's houses. I don't know. Um, but this really, I mean, I don't know, but the, the novel does end um, right on this note of how she would have a full life, just organizing his index and reading his proofs and not necessarily in a romantic relationship with him. And so I was, I don't know how to describe my feeling um, of discovering that she did sort of in a sidelong way marry him and like kind of off screen in other books because like that that hinge that you refer to the night of passion where she dreams of 
how he's lying alone in his flat with no one to cook his meat. Right. She says it's unbearable that he should think that, um, and the word she uses is unbearable. Like the word that it's unbearable that he should think that I should just do this, but it's also unbearable that he should lie there alone. It's yeah. <laughs> just like, yeah. I was like, Oh, the plight, the plight of confidence. It's so hard. <laughs> um, so I wanted to circle back and talk about Italy, the anthropologists, and actually also that plight of con- competence. And that is by putting this in a context of colonialism. And um, I think that there's sort of two vectors of ways that English novels can talk about colonialism. And one of them is with the idea of adventure and the idea of glamour and the idea that real life is somewhere else and that real life is being conducted by people like the anthropologists who are out there just going wherever they want and encountering new experiences or going to Italy and having Italian girlfriends or all these things that, um, that could be done if you don't just stay close to where you were born and close to those circumstances that you were born in. And then I think that the other vector of talking about the same sort of perception of the world is to really romanticize coziness and the cottage and the pleasures of home and what it means to have like a real cup of tea when you're rattled or whatever, whatever the comforts of home that seem most purely home-like that romanticizing those a lot, I think is another part of the same way of thinking about colonialism from the side of the colonist. And I think that this book strongly rejects both of those. I think that she finds the anthropologists to be often boring and ignorant. And they have this idea that she could be an anthropologist too, but that she might just get obsessed with some little tribe somewhere and that that would make her also have a very narrow and boring life. And um, I think that she also is very aware of how much work all the comforts of home are. And how that's work that someone's doing and the 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 price of competence the price of being the person who is able to prepare dinner or cook the meat or make a nice cup of tea whatever it is the person who remembers to buy toilet paper that the price of being that person is that you're not seen as romantic you're not seen as individual or lovable you're just seen as sort of an amenity for other people to absorb. I just thought it was a really interesting place for a book about the 1950s in Britain to position itself when it seems like both thinking about the British as heroic overseas and at home was at a, um, a high ebb. That's definitely true. I think that your point about the comforts of home is really well taken. There is she does a remarkable job of putting a kind of labor on the page that is like unglamorous. And frankly, like I would find it as a writer, a narrative challenge to make it interesting. Yeah. And because it is occupied by Mildred's thoughts and judgments, you know, she's bending over a sink, cleaning up someone else's mess. Um, you know, she's making a cup of tea and these things become like a kind of refrain And also they're immediately undermined every time one appears. Like, for example, there's a scene where everyone's meeting at the 
uh, at the uh, at the church to discuss the Christmas bazaar, and one of the women makes a pot of tea, and it's like the wrong like it gets stewed. Oh my gosh! It gets, yes. <laughs> <laughs> right, and so um, and then there's another moment where. Mildred observes that she has made tea exactly the same way. And once it has come out strong and, and perfect, and the other time it came out so weak and sad that her guests thought it was a different kind of tea, China tea, they call it. So, and what a treat, but actually it was just black tea that she had brewed not very well. Yeah. And um, so there are all of these iterations and, and then people come to her and say, you know, the character Rocky comes to her at one point and says, Mildred, I was hoping. And she says, what were you hoping? And he says, I was hoping you would make a cup of tea because you're always making tea on occasions. And isn't this an occasion, Mildred? And she was like, well, crap, you know, <laughs> like, I guess if he's going to say that, there's nothing I can do but make the tea. And this is also, I mean, I don't know, as a person who comes from like my family is Sri Lankan and I certainly come from like a history of talking about the British and colonialism and, and all of that. And also as someone who just has spent a ton of time in England, like this reappearance of the teacup at basically every possible opportunity was also very familiar and comic to me. And also it doesn't, it doesn't always work. Like yeah. as the novel sort of points out, like, Oh, sometimes the tea is stewed or like other people go and take all of the tea before you've had any, like eat all the good sandwich cake, or I don't know. It just was like, a, it was serving as such a deft and, and, um complex metaphor and there were so many iterations of it I was like ah the tea <laughs> again yeah the tea. I thought it worked really well as a as a motif that she would not stop complicating in a certain sense but I also think that it it balanced the idea that that colonialism is not an answer to any of Mildred's problems where I think that that would be kind of the easy and obvious story for this book to have is that she meets this couple where the wife is an anthropologist and she meets the, you know, the wife's friend who's also an anthropologist and he wants her to sort of join him in his work. And um, I think that there's a version of this book that would be written by almost any other author. Well, I won't say that many other authors where the happy ending is that she's introduced to a bigger world where her competencies are no longer sort of how she's judged as both boring and useful. And the fact that this is not that book, the fact that her pleasures really are in petty, but also sort of delicious little independences in her own milieu. Like it's not serving others and it's not going out and conquering other lands either. It's just in being able to choose her own church. Yeah, I think that that's definitely, I mean, people are always assuming that she's doing things in service of them, and she's actually generally doing them in service of herself. And she's also content to have that be invisible. Um, she doesn't necessarily need credit for it. She rarely protests. Um, and yeah, she also, speaking of colonialism, like, right, they, they spent some time at the Learned Society where Helena Napier and um, Everard Bone are jointly giving a paper involving kinship structures and somewhere in the audience for that there is an older woman who is knitting and then she falls asleep yeah that's the and wife right 
Yeah, it's the president's wife, and she falls asleep, and she's the person who Mildred finds kinship with. Mildred doesn't really listen to the paper. Yeah, she's really of, boring. She, yeah, she finds it really boring. She doesn't feel that bad about that. And she looks around the learned society and kind of sees things and sees, um, if I remember correctly, she maybe sees a picture of a woman on the wall from 1907. And then later, she, she feels a sympathy for the president's wife. And then later, the president dies. Um drops dead and she goes to see someone who lives over the learned society who it turns out has had to take all of the president's like sort of ephemera from his anthropological career because the president's wife doesn't want it yes yes and Mildred's like oh the freedom she must feel and everyone else is like oh the poor lady like what will she do And, and Mildred's like oh maybe she all of a sudden has room for the life that she actually wants. And I was like, oh my God, she's old Mildred. Maybe she's old Mildred. Actually, I wrote down that sentence in my notes. Um, I had, quote, I wonder if she feels a great sense of freedom to be free and independent. That's the thing, but surely not the thing you want when you're old. And I think that that's kind of, that's like some of her tension here is that she knows that, that all the good things she has in her life through independence are things that are somewhat scorned um, and she's, you know, seen as being like uh, she's looked down upon for being an old maid and that also it's possible that she's wrong and that she will live to regret this singleness. And all of the like, well, I think that there's like, there are these clusters of women who are friends and she has an old school friend, Dora, who comes by to see her and who is, I must say a deeply annoying character and who is, I think, intended to be deeply annoying almost as like an alternative version of who Mildred might be if she just had a very different personality yeah um and then also Dora's brother William with whom Mildred has an annual luncheon and there's kind of the ghost of there's sort of the ghost of romantic possibility around Mildred's relationships with a number of men yeah but the ghost is not actually Mildred's desire but other people's presumptions of desire um yeah, which is interesting. I thought it was interesting that the way that marriage is framed here is just about entirely something that where a woman would give up freedom and do more sort of domestic labor in return for uh, more social uh, prestige and sex or children or love in the more passionate sense, like it that none of those things seem like they have as much weight as the question of whether you're going to just do your own dishes or whether you're going to do dishes for someone else as well. And whether that means that he gets to sort of make decisions about furniture when otherwise you just get to keep your own furniture the way you like it. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. I think also like kind of going back to what you were saying about colonialism, when I think about, I had forgotten um, that, Mildred does do all of this arranging of other people's matters and specifically men to whom she has no real obligation, but they presume that she does. And then a couple of instances in which that doesn't happen, she goes and eats at a cafeteria um, with someone I'm not remembering which character it is. And they sit at a table with two Indian gentlemen and her companion sort of says, you know, it's a, it's a good thing. Like, you know, I think that we're, you know, we're here with each other and there's other people here and like, we'll be okay. And there's this sort of her, her companion kind of raises the specter of, 
these other strange men. And then it turns out that they're sort of just students and Mildred's kind of like, I think we would have been fine yeah. <laughs> either way. Um, so kind of the only, some of the only men who appear in the story who are not presuming on Mildred in this way are actually those characters who I think are intended to, of, of course, invoke colonial history um, well, and it, and as well as not even the actual population. Yeah. Yeah. As well as the actual population of people living in London. Um, um, that's really interesting. And another of those moments, just because Italy is another of the countries that, um, that this book is kind of in conversation with, like Mildred learns to eat spaghetti and is confused by it and figures that it's, you're sort of not <laughs> supposed to eat spaghetti. It's like, it doesn't really, it's like the fork plus the noodles is, it's like, it's not working for her. Um, and, but she sort of tries it gamely and sort of, it's, it's sort of her attitude toward all of these parts of the world that are not her part of the world, like cheerful, lack of judgment, curiosity, but not acquisitiveness. That's interesting. I hadn't, yeah, that's, there's also just sort of, is there any really good food in this? I feel like a lot of British novels are kind of tasty. But, <laughs> but it's like not tasty. I agree. And I think that it has to do with that, sort of rejection of coziness where it's a domestic novel that's really not about the comforts of home. It's a lot more about the comforts of independence and being allowed to tell your friend, sorry, you can't live with me. Yeah. And, um, but so another thing that I actually wanted to bring up that's sort of related to independence is I think there's a lot of uncertainty about whether a woman who doesn't marry is not good enough to get a man um, or whether she's sort of, you know, like she leveled up the wrong traits. She's too good at, <laughs> at certain things and then not good enough at like being fascinating or something. And the idea that, that the woman who like a widow has gotten a man once. So it's pretty easy for her to do it again because she, she knows the trick. And I think that that, that sort of simmering, like if you were to, like, how much is this a concern of the novel on a scale of one to 10? I would say that's simmering behind a lot of it at like a six. And then I was thinking about it in terms of the um, later, like Bridget Jones's diary, I think says that really loud. Like it takes a lot of the concerns of this book and amplifies them a lot. What does it mean to be single and independent in your thirties in London? And is it in fact a pleasure to have a lot of friends and your own apartment and get to do things your own way and sleep around if you want to, or is it a degradation that you're just not found to be good enough? And I think that she has that in there. I think that she wants to reject it and sort of finally does, but there's no question that she's living in a society that is pretty judgmental toward her. Definitely. Definitely. Um, as you're talking, I'm just realizing Mildred has women friends in this book, but I would not describe any of them, perhaps save Winifred, as close women friends. Um, well, and her and, with Winifred is also like refusing to let Winifred stay with her long term because she finds her annoying. Right. Right. And also um, 
the way that a very small kind of rift enters their friendship when Allegra Gray moves into, there is a moment at the beginning of the book where Mildred is the one who might move into the vicarage. And there's a suggestion that she could take that side and live with the Mallorys and she doesn't want to Yeah, really. And then Allegra Gray does and the Mallorys become enchanted with her and Mildred is very slightly cast aside. Um, and so Mildred doesn't have actually in contrast to Bridget Jones, close female friends, she doesn't have a lot of romantic relationships. She also, interestingly, although she has an income, she does not have what I would describe as a career um, in comparison to, say, Helena, who is actually very clearly a career person. And so what occupies Mildred's heart is not a professional ambition either. No, um, and her but, friends don't even know what her job is. Like they remember right. her as having a job working with fallen women, but she's actually working with aged women right um right and the uh, it's like they sort of remember her job as being like two degrees sexier than it really is um but i think that it's also the kind of labor that a single woman probably could have done at any point in english history um or probably the history of most nations um i I think the idea of women having careers as opposed to that kind of job where you look after people who need care. Um, I think that's the new thing is the idea of a career that could involve like promotions and intellectual labor and stuff like that. Yeah. And we actually don't correct me if I'm wrong. We don't ever see Mildred at that job. We just hear about it. Yeah. She goes to that job. She comes from that job. She departs for lunchtime services at St. Ermin's from that job, but we don't actually see her caring for aged gentlewomen. Um, yeah, I think that's right. So I also, I have a note here um, that I think is connected to your point about her connections to other women. Um, and I, I don't know who it is who says it, but I think it was her. It, I have quotation marks, a real viper. And that is a woman who hasn't finished the housework. Like she goes into somebody else's apartment. Is it Allegra Gray's apartment or is it? No, it's Helena's apartment. It's, it's when Helena leaves Rocky and she notices that Helena had not finished doing the dishes before she left her husband. Mm-hmm. And she's just like, what a bitch. It's Mrs. Morris who is the housekeeper sort of for, for both flats within that house. And she's sort of waits to gossip with Mildred who kind of is also always torn between wanting to gossip and not wanting to gossip. Yeah. And yeah, she does say what, she does say what a viper. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And just that idea that like a woman could have a full career and um, be married, which is something that there is this question of, is there some worthiness about married women that Mildred herself doesn't have? Um, And yet she also doesn't finish doing the dishes um, right. that, that that is one of the rare moments where Mildred actually is really judgmental. And she's also curious. She's like, maybe she was, you know, maybe it was a difficult day. Maybe she was having like a lot of feelings, whatever. She doesn't say those words, but you know what I mean? Um, like maybe there were reasons she didn't do the dishes, but at the same time, it's like obviously radiating tension to her, the idea of leaving your apartment without having finished the dishes, even if your purpose is to leave your husband. Um, and yeah, yeah. It, that actually happens again with Allegra Gray's flat. It happens with both flats. Yeah, I was thinking it happened. Yeah, okay. 
Thank you for reminding me. Um, that sense that the thing that a good woman has to do is a hundred percent of the work of all domestic concerns and all kind of like, not just domestic, cause it's also the, um, anthropologists, you know, proof checking and stuff like that. Um, just to be of service to other people all the time. Um, and that does get in the way of her forming real connections with other women. It seems like that's definitely one of the things, but then also, I mean, Dora seems to be on the same page with her about some of those things, but their friendship. And one of the interesting things about that friendship is the way that Mildred sort of seems to grow out of it also just intellectually. Yeah. Um, and then there, yeah, there are various other women who like sister Blatt, um, who is also very judgmental about the left, the left dishes. And then there's a number of scenes where it is highlighted in pretty hilarious fashion that women are doing a lot of things and men are sitting around commenting while making no moves to help. <laughs> um, which is also, I mean, down to um, probably, I mean, the two, for my money, the two most likable male characters in the book are Julian Mallory and Everard Bone. And even Julian Mallory does this, you know, he sort of walks around commenting on how the flowers are being arranged and says to someone, um, that's it, splendid. I, he, he actually says this to Mildred as she's putting flowers into a jar. Um, so I don't know, like as though it's his role to go around um, managing rather than doing. Yeah, yeah. Um, another note that I um, took here is um, about Chekhov because I think I mean, we were just reading Chekhov for the podcast recently. Um, but I think that the other books that we're putting this in conversation with the like Austin and the um, Bridget Jones's diary, I think of those as both like pretty judgmental authors. And I think that this has a more like, even when the characters are judgmental, I think the text itself is not very judgmental. It's impressive that I just thinking about what you, I love judginess so much in characters because it's so entertaining and it gives you something as a reader to push against or to agree or to agree with, or just sort of, right. It's sort of being privy to the judgmental qualities of characters or the prose itself is almost like being invited into a kind of gossip yeah, and, or it can be. And the fact that this book manages to make it, to be so enjoyable and to make you privy to the judgments of various characters without being judgmental itself. Uh, it's kind of an impressive feat. Yeah. I, I completely agree. I felt like I could see where this book fit into, you know, a, a tradition that I'm pretty familiar with and yet like the, the ways that it stood out from that tradition seemed really remarkable to me actually that it could describe a bunch of people who are committing themselves entirely to domestic usefulness constantly judging domestic usefulness as a bad way to spend your life and kind of scorn scorning other people who do that kind of thing and also calling people who don't do it well enough vipers 
And then the book itself is kind of like, oh, yeah, that's one way to be. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, I think essentially what it does is make an argument for Mildred's life as a large life, Um, which I think it does even in its final line, sort of, you know, Mildred's Mildred sort of says, oh, and then I might, I might actually live a full life. And you're sort of like, but wait, you actually have been all along, which I think is the intention of the book to demonstrate that. Um, Not that Mildred, I think, needs a defense and the book doesn't do it in a defensive way, but she's so funny and human and rich in her thoughts um, and so fundamentally sympathetic without being she thinks of herself as put upon, but I actually see, it seems like there's so much agency actually in everything that she does that. Yeah. And she's really good at establishing her own boundaries. Yeah. She, at that moment, she was like, she's like, no, Winfred, you can stay here for a night or two. Yeah. Um, and she tells Everard that she's not going to cook his meat. Like until she decides she does want to. Yeah. And then when she's presiding over the Christmas bazaar and everyone's like, we can't possibly have the meeting about the Christmas bazaar without father Mallory. And she's like, father Mallory is not needed here. He should go back and play darts. And father Mallory's like, I will totally go back and play darts because you don't need me. Um, She's like, I don't know. She's the person who dares to suggest change. Um, Even very, I mean, not necessarily for the sake of it, but just um, she's also the person in those, in those spaces of small pleasure who does suggest advancements of various kinds. Um, you know, other people are like, but the church has been run this way since the 1870s. And she's like, well, you know, we've always done it this way and that way seems fine. And also this other person suggested this other thing and that might be cool too. Yeah. Um, she's very reasonable. She's repeatedly referred to as sensible. And at various points, it's kind of a diminishment. And at other points, especially coming from Everard Bowen, it's often... Um, a really intense and earned compliment. Yeah. And I think that the, the book is definitely working with the same sense and sensibility uh, division of sensibility being sexy and sense being boring, but useful. Same as Jane Austen. The book is aware of that. It just doesn't seem to agree. Yeah. And, um, I think, you know, nowhere is that better embodied than in Rockingham Napier. <laughs> yeah. Um, who's sort of, right, he's ostensibly very sexy. And and Mildred even, I think we're, we're meant to kind of understand that Mildred has, almost against her own will, a slight crush on him. Um, but he's essentially, although she's hardly a Lydia, he's kind of a Wickham. Yeah. Um, he's emotionally unreliable, a narcissist. Um fickle um you know yeah and helena leaves him but then goes back because she's bored like (laughs) because she finds him interesting which again is it's like a theory of what marriage is for that um that you don't see in those other books that we're talking about yeah, and another make their wives' lives more interesting is not sort of on the list usually. No, it really isn't. You're like, I would just like some someone pleasing and steady and reliable and a bit dull. A bit dull is fine. 
Um, she has this idea that if men want to get married, they can just go and marry someone. It's only women that are stuck if they're not married. It's only a shame if it's women. Um, but she has a ton of options and she really doesn't want to marry any of them, but she doesn't necessarily think of herself as turning them down. She's just always pulling away at the moment when leaning towards some man would result in her marrying him. Yeah. And I think one of the other things that echoes this sort of gap between people's perceptions that is running throughout the book, like this thread is there are frequent, there are lots of characters quoting texts and almost immediately after the texts are quoted, Mildred thinks about how the quote doesn't quite work. (laughs) Um, And how the person is attempting to paint themselves as learned or romantic or something by quoting something. And then she'll think, but that doesn't, that's not actually what that quote means. Or um, I don't know, some version of that. It, It happens so many times and it's, it's, it's always a little bit, and I, I must confess that in every case, I did not always go back and look up the quote to get the full extent of the joke. But in the cases where I did get it, I was like, she's totally right. Oh, like when they etch the line from Dante on the window in the apartment and then they get it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So Catherine, can I ask you, how does it change your perception? And I think I'm still wrestling with this question yourself. When you know that sort of in Pym's fictional world, Mildred does later marry Everard. What do you think about that? I don't know. I guess it kind of makes me think about people who live full adult lives without children and then have children right at the end of that sort of like window of fertility. Um, Not necessarily because parenthood is something that they absolutely must do or really, really want to do, but because it's part of the human experience that they want to have, they just, they've done the not having children thing and then they want to have the children and, and sort of try both things. I had children young, as you know, and seeing people live a full life with one family structure and then a different family structure um, it kind of makes me happy that people are able to do that, that that's one way to be a person. Um, it's not the way that I was a person. So in some ways it seems like obviously kind of depressing that she marries in another way. If she lives a full adult life as a single person and then decides to marry and then lives a full married life, it's good that people can do more than one thing with their adulthood. I like that way of thinking about it. And I think that, um, I mean, you remind, reminded me that, right. She does, she's very good at setting her own batteries. So I have to think that she doesn't end up cooking ever bones meat unless she really wants to. Yeah. Um, that it's not sort of a capitulation. She's not. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a passive thing that happens to her, but actually a thing that she must choose. Um, even if it's, kind of off screen um it's definitely not the culmination of her single life oh no certainly not certainly not all right that's all for our excellent women episode 
Thank you so much to Siggy for joining me and for choosing this excellent book, and to Adam Bear for our music, as well as to everyone at LitHub for hosting us. If you'd like to write to us, we're at LitCenturyPod on Twitter and LitCenturyPodcast at gmail.com. Goodbye till next week. <laughs>